This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Although I'm a licensed and practicing physician, I do want to note that since last week's program, I learned a great deal new about the subject of illness from direct experience, i.e. I spent most of the last week sick as a dog. And of course, now we are beginning our annual cold and flu season. I expect a lot of you will uh, likewise feel under the weather in the weeks and months to come. And if we have some time, I think in our final segment today, I'll have a few reflections upon that very question. One certainly gains some new insights about life when you can just barely, barely get up out of bed. In our second segment today, I hope we will continue our uh, series of talks we've had over the years with our good pal from Los Angeles, James Eugenio. At that symposium I attended last month in uh, Pittsburgh, PA, Jim gave an absolutely outstanding talk on the subject of JFK, who will be featured in pretty much, I think, every program this month, given that this does mark the 50th anniversary of his passing. But let's start today's show, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 7th of November. It was on November 7th and 305 B.C. that Ptolemy, a Macedonian general and follower of Alexander the Great assumed the kingship of Egypt. Cleopatra VII, who died in 30 BC, was the last of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Yes, it's true. The famous Queen Cleopatra was a Greek. On November 7th in 1916, Montana suffragette Jeanette Rankin was elected to the United States House of Representatives. Rankin was the first woman to win a seat in the U.S. Congress. She also has the distinction of being the only congressperson to have voted against both World War I and World War II. In spite of Rankin's efforts, the U.S. did enter both conflicts. Although in retrospect, you do have to wonder if Rankin wasn't right about World War I. And speaking of World War I, it was a year later on November 7th in 1917 that Alexander Kerensky fled Russia. At that point, the Bolsheviks took over. This event was known as the October Revolution because Russia was still using the Julian calendar under which their date was October 25th. So yes, if somebody tries to sucker you in with that question of during which month the October Revolution took place, the answer is November. And in the wake of the chaos of World War I, four years later, on November 7th in 1921, in Italy... The National Congress picked Benito Mussolini as its leader. That didn't pan out so well. And speaking of elections, here at home on November 7th in 1940, Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt was re-elected President of the United States for an unprecedented third time, handily defeating his Republican challenger, Wendell Wilkie. Our quote today comes from economist Paul Krugman. It comes in conjunction with a couple of articles in the British publications New Scientist and The Economist about designers of interstellar spacecraft, which certainly sounds like a flight of fancy, but not only have engineers gotten into it, economists have apparently also got involved. 
Noted The Economist magazine, one of the best papers was written by Paul Krugman, a trade theorist in 1978, in between his duties as a, quote, oppressed assistant professor, unquote. And here's where the quote comes in. Krugman titled his piece, The Theory of Interstellar Trade, describing itself as, quote, a serious analysis of a ridiculous subject, which is the opposite of what is usual in economics. Which segues into our quip of the day, which is also about the dismal science of economics. And in truth, I guess this is really more of a quote than a quip, because it's kind of long, but bear with me. The October 19th issue, the editors of The Economist noted the following. The prize in economic sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, as it is officially known, sometimes struggles to command the same respect as its counterparts. Though awarded by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, just like the prizes in physics, chemistry, and medicine, it was a latecomer to the ceremonies, established in 1968 by Sweden's Central Bank, rather than 1896 by Mr. Nobel's will. This year's winners appeared to reinforce doubts about the prize's standing. Notes the magazine. One, Eugene Fama of Chicago, is known for his ardent belief in the efficiency of markets. He declined to renew his subscription to this newspaper after tiring of its incessant warning about bubbles, the very existence of which he denies. And no, we're not economists here at Radio Parallax, and we can't really uh, judge fairly, perhaps, the merit of Mr. Eugene Fama of Chicago receiving the Nobel Prize in Economics. But we have to agree with The Economist that if he thinks bubbles don't exist, well, he's no Nobel Prize laureate. All right, and our jokes of the day, and I think we need more than one, come first of all from the writers of Jay Leno, who noted last week, just when you thought the state of American health care couldn't get any worse, Dr. Conrad Murray, Michael's Jackson doctor, has been released from jail. And how about this from the writers of Jimmy Fallon? A new study found that American workers lack the problem-solving skills that workers in other countries have. When American workers heard about the study, they said, what should we do? And our statistic of the day, which has to be one of our odder ones over the years, is 21 seconds. Which is apparently, oddly enough, the amount of time it takes cows, elephants, dogs, and goats to urinate. Yes, according to a study in New Scientist magazine, Patricia Yang and colleagues at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta filmed rats, dogs, cows, goats, and elephants urinating Boy, and you think you got a crappy job. And while they were at it, gathered footage from YouTube of other species relieving themselves. Combining this with data on mass, bladder pressure, and urethra size, they created a mathematical model of urinary systems to show why mammals take the same time to empty their bladder despite obvious differences in bladder size. And I do want to note that Mr. McMillan can smell an ignoble in this one. To quote from New Scientist, previous research focused on humans and other animals where the effect of gravity can be ignored. And no, I don't know why the effect of gravity is ignored when you and I urinate, but that's what it says. But the magazine notes, that's not true of elephants, whose urethras are about one meter long and 10 centimeters wide, allowing the urine to reach higher speeds. Dogs and goats have shorter urethras, so get less of a gravitational boost and have smaller bladders. The result is they all emptied their bladders in roughly the same time. And, you know, I gotta admit, although we like to 
to bed some of these items with appropriate bits of music. We are stuck for anything to attach to this particular item. When there's no sense getting PO'd about it, let's, let's just move on. And in fact, let's move right on into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Hanging 10, with the news that a Brazilian surfer may have set a new world record during the fierce storm that blew across Europe last week. While everyone else hunkered down and hid from hurricane-strength winds that blew down trees and power lines, killing at least a dozen people, surfers flocked to the Portuguese coast, where at the beach at Nazaré, Carlos Berlay went on to surf a massive wave that may have been as high as 100 feet. The world record of 78 feet was set two years ago at the same beach by American Garrett McNamara. All right, and on the other hand, it was a bad week last week for Heinz Ketchup. After McDonald's announced that the company's condiment would no longer be served at its restaurant because of Heinz's, quote, management changes, unquote. Apparently, this summer, Heinz appointed a former head of Burger King as its CEO. And no, we have no word of who it is is going to replace Heinz on your McDonald's burgers. But I guess for my part, I can't help rooting for Hunts, having been the one-time condiment clerk at the Hunts cannery located on the outskirts of Davis, which is now long gone. Very sad. But sadder than that, I think, is the fact that it was an ugly week last week, or at least it has to be considered an ugly week for Britney Spears, given the following news. Sea captains have taken to using the music of Miss Spears in their battle against Somali pirates. Yes, apparently ships off the coast of East Africa have started blasting the pop star's music at ear-splitting volume when, when raiders approach. According to The Week magazine, Oops, I Did It Again is particularly effective at forcing the bandits to halt. And they quote Rachel Owens, a merchant Navy officer, saying, These guys can't stand Western culture or music. It's so effective, the ship's security rarely needs to resort to firing guns. And no, we're not going to use that tune as background music because we're afraid it might have the same effect upon you, dear listener, that it has on Somali pirates. And and frankly, we want to keep you around. All right, how about this from the Only in America file? California police, no, we're not sure which city this is in, but says the item, California police are using a cop in a chicken suit to ensnare careless drivers. The six-foot-tall chicken ambles across school crosswalks that many motorists have been carelessly driving through, and any driver who fails to stop for a six-foot-tall chicken police reason is also the kind of person that's not going to stop for a four-foot-tall student. Officers ended up ticketing 31 drivers who didn't yield to the big bird. Notre Dame police spokesman, even though the decoy was wearing a bright yellow costume, most drivers stated they did not see him. We probably should have snoped that story, but we're going to let it stand this week. Another item we have some doubts about is this one from the New York Times. 
which is that reportedly dozens of new books on John F. Kennedy are being published to coincide with the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination on November 22nd, which we don't doubt, frankly. But it also notes that since 1963, there have been more than 40,000 books published on JFK. Now, if you do the math on this, 50 years at 365 days a year is a little over 18,000 days, which means that for the past 50 years, there have been two books a day published about John F. Kennedy. All right, here's an item that I've been sitting on for, I don't know, many weeks, because it you know, seemed crazy and kind of made me crazy. But the October 5th issue of New Scientist noted that uh, over in Africa, they were going to crush and burn a lot of ivory rather than sell it on the world market. The magazine noted that Richard Ruggiero, who was described as the chief of the Africa branch of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and who knew they had an African branch, has worked with elephants and ivory for more than 30 years. He is an advocate for the illegal ivory crush, which, which took place last month. The magazine asked him, what's the purpose of the ivory crush? Ruggiero answered, increasing demand for ivory is driving uncontrolled elephant poaching. We intend to crush about 25 years worth of ivory confiscated by our law enforcement agents. By sending it by destroying it in this public way, we're sending a clear message to criminals who engage in trafficking and poaching that the U.S. government takes the issue of illegal ivory trade very seriously. Boy, that's going to stop them. The magazine then asked, how significant a threat does this illegal trade pose for elephants? Ruggiero, there are several reasons why elephants are having problems. Bush meat was the driving force behind poaching in Central Africa for a couple of decades. Then, increasing demand from rising economies in Asia began driving this recent increase in poaching for ivory. Now, the ivory trade is by far the number one problem. Bush meat is number two, followed by habitat loss due to conflicts between human and elephant interests. The magazine then asks the rather obvious question, why not flood the market with legalized ivory to satiate demand? Ruggiero, we feel that is absolutely not the way to go. To begin with, demand is frequently stimulated by availability. Also, in principle, illegal trade makes sense, but in reality, it creates a smokescreen for laundering illegal ivory. When people see a logo or statement that it was legally acquired, they don't dig very deeply for details used to determine that. Finally, a simple reason is the demand is so high right now that there are not enough elephants left in the world to produce enough legally acquired ivory to satisfy the market. So what's this knucklehead solution? Crush it and destroy it and raise the value of the ivory that's out there. That's just bound to save the elephants that are left, don't you think? And in fact, in a follow-up to that article, someone wrote the magazine. In this case, his name was Stanley Schatzel from New South Wales, Australia, and asked the magazine the following. Since when did biologists become arbiters of the laws of supply and demand? The proposed destruction of confiscated ivory described by Richard Ruggiero of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would be an act of foolishness. It would simply increase the black market price of ivory and thus encourage criminals to take greater risks. 
By selling the ivory held in stock at reasonable prices, significant funds would be created, enabling, at no cost to governments, the formation of really effective wildlife protection. We are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. To which we have to add the uh, editorial comment, Duh! We have to start asking, what is with these fish and wildlife people? Here in California, they've been shooting bobcats. They've been taking away people's deer. And then one of the jackasses that's supposed to head the agency goes up to Idaho to bag a mountain lion, which is illegal to do here in California. Jesus! We have to side with Stanley Schatzel from Australia in, in saying that, you know, this, this was, is not a smart idea. But back to the original piece, uh, talking to Ruggiero, their final question was, how will the ivory be crushed and what will happen to it afterwards? Ruggiero, we're using a stone crusher to reduce it to shards less than a quarter of an inch in size, which will render it commercially useless. Then it will go back to storage, as we're still deciding what to do with it. It could be interesting to get suggestions from the public. Perhaps it might make a good aggregate for concrete, bricks, or statues that could be embossed with a conservation message. This guy has really got his thinking cap on, doesn't he? My head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. As we bring this segment to a close, we want to note how comet fever is now sweeping the world as comet Ison is blazing into glory. Not. Yes, all this hype about comet Ison possibly being the comet of the century, well, it ain't looking so good. Now, the comet still has a date with Destiny rendezvousing with the sun here on November 28th. In fact, its closest approach will be at about 2.40 Eastern Standard Time, which means that for most Americans that works out to about the end of halftime of the Packers-Lions nationally televised football game. Now, it still may turn out that uh, the comet will reach an what's described as jaw-dropping magnitude of negative 13, which means it'll be about as bright as the full moon. Unfortunately, it'll be right next to the sun. And since the sun is about a half million times brighter than the full moon, this may, this may wash it out a bit. We'll have more to say about that probably next week. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.